Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Join Hoda Kotb for a brand new season of her podcast, Making Space. For season five, I am making space to talk to people who are providing a sense of hope and inspiration when life changes course. Uplifting conversations with inspiring individuals like NFL legend Drew Brees, singer-songwriter Ziggy Marley, and today's show co-anchor Savannah Guthrie as you have never heard her before. I found faith more viscerally, not because the bad thing didn't happen, but because it did. I promise you, like me, will leave these conversations with some wisdom for your own journey, empowered and inspired to make space in your own life. New episodes of Making Space with Hoda Kotb are released every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Zivi Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in Santa Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Tessa Hadley is the author of After the Funeral and Other Stories. Tessa is a repeat guest here on the show and is just amazing. I'm like obsessed with Tessa. Anyway, Tessa is the author of three previous collections of stories and eight novels. She was awarded the Wyndham Campbell Prize for Fiction, the Hawthorne Den Prize, and the Edge Hill Short Story Prize, and has been a finalist for the Story Prize. She contributes regularly to The New Yorker and reviews for The Guardian and the London Review of Books. She lives in Cardiff, Wales. Welcome, Tessa. Thank you so much for coming back on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books the second time, this time to discuss After the Funeral, your collection of short stories. It's lovely to be here, Zubi. Thank you. Well, as you know, I was such a huge fan of Free Love and so excited when this book came out. The way you write is just, it's like, I actually was reading passages out loud to my kids at the breakfast table this morning because I was like, listen to how beautiful she writes, how beautifully she writes. So anyway, then I was like, maybe I shouldn't be reading both. Anyway, (laughs) so why don't you tell listeners about the collection, Mm -hmm. what inspired it, what some of the stories mean to you and, and all that. It doesn't really have a theme. Quite often I'm asked, what's, you know, did, did you have a theme for these stories? Does it have a sort of strand going through it? And the truth is, it's just the last 12 stories I wrote. There are themes in it, of course, but they're my themes. They're just the themes that would inevitably emerge whenever I wrote anything, really. Yeah, I what I tend to do in my rhythm of writing is to always have a novel on the go, but punctuate that 
with taking time out to write short stories. And I, I just, I, partly because that's just how my writings develop, but it really works for me because I find, you know, I have said sometimes writing a novel is a bit like being married. <laughs> it's a kind of long-term commitment with its ups and downs. And I suppose I'd have to go on to say then that short stories are like a fling. They're like an affair. You kind of just take time out from, from this deep, long, difficult commitment to a novel. And it, it feels like a very free space when, I, when I'm writing something short. Partly, partly it's just simple. If it goes wrong, all right, you're heartbreaking. You know, if, if, if it doesn't work, you can't get the ending. You can't make it like you want it to be. It's horrible, but it's not like a novel not working. There's something careless about writing it. And equally, it's to do with the length of a short story. That's careless. It, it, you can throw something in there, which is sort of hot and funny, or exciting, and you don't need to follow through, whereas a novel a novel is all about follow through. So what then? And what if you did that? Then what? But a short story is play. So So it's just my last 12 stories and it felt like about time to to have another collection your last 12 affairs so to speak <laughs> my last 12 affairs i mean that's that's where the analogy breaks down that would be insane so <laughs> that is one of the themes that you write about a lot and that is in this book as well and free love and you know exploring what it is when you don't when you have something so steady and then mm. you fall into something else or you mm. change gears. I mean, even in the the first story after the funeral, it's not from the point of view of the mom, but from her paramour, essentially, who makes his decision of what to do with his marriage. It's, I don't know, you're just obsessed with this whole thing. Uh, me, me, and, <laughs> me and every other writer. <laughs> As writing, what does fiction want to do? It wants to cluster around the places where where life intensifies, the places where the marriage, if you like, or whatever steady state it is, is suddenly thrown into prominence. We suddenly see what otherwise is just our medium, like a fish in water. But but when it's threatened, jeopardized, cut across, someone dies, someone falls in love with somebody else. Or those fractures are when the steady state is shown for what it is. So, mm. so I think naturally, fiction chooses to sort of sit on those places of fracture, and and one of them is absolutely where, you know, a marriage that can look pleasant, lovely, continuous, settled, suddenly stops looking like any of those things, but in a way becomes intensified by by the threat. Wow. Even just how you talk about ordinary things is like, it's like, it's amazing. It's like, there's a room and then you, when you come in, the room becomes like completely decorated with like all these bright colors and like, I don't know, oh. like, I don't know how to describe it. It just changes a simple sentence into something very decorated in a good way. Well, that's a lovely thing to say. And you know, I think that is what I've always felt about writing, about the writers I love is exactly what you've just described. I Life can seem drab. I mean, I have literally just spent the morning here booking trains, organizing, <laughs> sending emails, and, and life can seem like that. What's what's for supper? I've got to do that. I've got to get it. You know. And writing, good writing, gives back to all that everydayness. It isn't that I want fairy tales or or something about a princess or a or for that matter, a war. 
it can bring to the most mundane details a, a kind of lining which turns them into gold. That that's a that's a mixed metaphor. It, it brings it brings a magic to them which spins straw into gold, like in the fairy tale. I, th- I think. Wow. Well, reading it and I guess writing it for you. I mean, it's both. I mean, what are some inspirational things that you've read or that like you are this, we'll do an analogy. You to me <laughs> are who to you in terms of writing. <laughs> One of my strong early writing memories is discovering uh, Elizabeth Bowen, who's an Anglo-Irish writer of the mid 20th century, quite modernist, but at the same time, always writing about real people doing real things, a little bit of kind of crazy supernatural around the edges. I can remember taking her books out from the library when I was probably 13 or 14, and I just decided, maybe I was 12 or 13, I decided it was time to read adult books. And I was, I, I, I came from a family that always had books, but they weren't intensely literary. So I had no idea. I really didn't know Henry James from Hugh Walpole or Compton Mackenzie. You won't even know those names. Nobody reads those people now. They they are and I think they're no, Henry James, yes, the other two know. I just, there I was confronted with all these names of unknown, mostly Edwardian writers. Where was I going? And I picked out Elizabeth Bowen because I liked the cover. It was as simple as that. She had a complete works and I loved the pictures on the covers. And I can remember reading, for instance, I think it's her second novel, The Last September, which is set in Ireland at the time of the Troubles. It's a great favourite of mine now. And I literally didn't know anything about Ireland or Irish politics. I didn't know about the upper class people that the novel is mostly engaged with. I didn't know that you dressed for dinner. I can remember thinking, were they not dressed before? Were they, you know, (laughs) still in their pyjamas? So in other words, I was reading in a code that I could hardly interpret. And I hardly knew at the end of the book what had happened. What what was that about? But something in it communicated to me that that thing we're talking about. It promised me that life was intensely rich, that every detail was packed with power. And that's such an important promise, especially when you're 12, 13, 14, and you, you don't know what life holds for you. And in a way, perhaps a lot of grown-up discourse around you is quite dreary, much as I love my parents, you know, pragmatic. Is that all it is? And then books give you instead this sort of, it's like putting on a magic ring or something. You know, the, the whole thing is charged with power. And though I could hardly understand her books, her sentences, something about the density of the writing just had that promise for me. Wow. That's amazing. Do you recognize that? Do you recognize Yes, I recognize it. I love what you said. Just elevating the mundane, essentially, Mm. taking Mm. your everyday and and making the smallest things into a story. It's you're changing your life into art, which gives it meaning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Exactly that. It's amazing. You said that, you know, these are these were affairs from your novels. So which novel for were were these multiple novels that you were were like the interstitials or yeah I think they are I think I think I was writing some of them while I was writing Free Love which we talked about last time and then some of them I've been writing while I've been struggling actually struggling with my new novel which is still only halfway through and I'm 
riven with doubts. But then I, I usually am. But that's not. I, then I think, oh, that's all right. You usually are. It'll be okay. And then I think, but that isn't a guarantee. What if this time you're right? Anyway, so I've been agonising over this novel. <laughs> what <laughs> in a world that is, I'm sure, wholly familiar to yes. you to everybody who. <laughs> but still, it doesn't make it any easier. What no, uh, no. What is this novel about, and where are you running into trouble? It's quite a sprawling novel, and I think that's part of the trouble. Whereas I felt that Free Love had a very kind of... I did feel that while I was even when I was writing it. I felt it was like shooting an arrow from a bow, and it had a target, and I knew where it was heading. This one is more sprawling, and it's it's a sort of... centred around an old woman, which I thought would be so interesting to write about. And I actually think it's hardest to write old people as I'm becoming one, because we've all been children and we've all been adolescents. We can all tap into those experiences. But actually, you know, un- unless you are writing while you're in your 70s or 80s, you haven't been there. You're, and I think the tendency to go back to cliche and sort of have a dear old grey-haired grandmother on the rocking chair, you know, is is strong and most of the old ladies I know, including my mother and my aunt, who are around 90-ish, uh, are just so nothing like that at all. And so my elderly lady, who's in her early 80s, is a, a big feminist character who was in her heyday having a crazy life, difficult, extreme, brilliant in the 60s, the 60s and the 70s. And now she's elderly and she's sort of living in the countryside in Somerset in England and her family and assistant and neighbours are gathered around her and it's sort of it's one of those stories quite you know classic in that it's a neighbourhood story it's they're coming out of lockdown actually that's not a that's not a big thing in the book but the sense that lockdown did create old-fashioned scenarios where you were stuck with the people you were near to both your own family and then maybe as things eased up, you know, people, a couple of people locally and almost Jane Austen-like <laughs> in the enforced intimacy. You had to find your neighbours interesting because they were what you had. So that, that that's that's sort of the core of it is my character. So then what's, what's, hold, what's the holdup? Where are you struggling? I, I think one or two of the characters I'm trying to talk about class which I always am interested in. And I've, um, my my young woman, I've got, yeah, is it that? It's her. It's it's my heroine. And I do think I've got her now. I'm getting hold of her. It took me a long time to, to feel all the dimensions of her. She's the young assistant who comes to help Eva, the elderly lady, with writing her memoir. Mm. And um, she's falling in love with Eva's son. Uh-huh. And just getting, so it's a, it's a love story, actually. It's a love story. Somebody else is in love with him too. It's going to be a classic love triangle. And it's funny, I found it much easier to make the the bad girl, the, the sort of dangerous, beautiful girl. Somehow she was much more fun and easy to do. Get to get my serious girl. I've been struggling. And but I think I might have got hold of her. She's begun to feel more multidimensional to me in the last hmm. few chapters. Well, maybe you should have the older lady having just passed away or something. You no, know, you did that so well it's, in this book, you know, and what happened after in the aftermath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, actually, it's funny you should say that. That's uncanny because it does begin with 
or the intimations that somebody's dying and then is that but it's it's an old lover of hers the news comes from Italy that one of her old lovers is very ill and he's going um, to send her a letter and then the news comes so that a death sort of frames yeah. the book a little bit but it uh, but is off stage enough for it not to feel too tragic interesting well I can't wait for that it sounds like it's going well I think you. I think I, it's all in your head I think crossed. it's going to be just fingers fun. crossed yeah, Fingers I'm, I'm rooting for you. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishful podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. So sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic Tongue Twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Tell me what writing, I, I know this is sound, this is going to sound like a crazy question, but when I sit down to write a sentence, I don't think a lot about, well, tell me what it's like writing the sentences that you do and how it is you get all of the details. Like even when you describe, maybe even talk about how you write your descriptions of people, because even like the doctor with his long legs that he has to fold up and like all the references that you like scatter through of his size and like the way you use words, like even to describe colors, like skylark blue or whatever you said, like, do you do that on first glance? Do you go back and, and sort mm. of add more details when you go back or is everything, does it all come out fully formed? That was a rambling question, but I hope you know what I mean. No, no, good question. That's a really interesting question. That's what writers are always so interested in, isn't it? And I, what I'm so interested in, in other writers. Uh, it, it kind of, it's interesting. I think it kind of depends which bit of the writing you're doing. Mm -hmm. Dialogue, I think, definitely often, first time through, I'm not getting that quite right. And that can really thicken up and get better the more I reread. I seem to hear, oh, he says more than that. It's funnier than that. Oh, that's what she would say in response to that. So that often comes in bits. And then for the, the kind of narration of the story, you just have to, you can hear that in your head when you start the story, particularly with the short story, particularly with the beginning of that story you're talking about, the title story after the funeral. You know, I could I could see those, those, those little girls and I could hear myself telling the tale of them. The physical description of people is, I almost do it slightly different. It's so important to me to get the presence of the individual. I think it matters in my life. So it matters to me that we can see him or, or her. And that can take a while. And I often have my note, I'm writing on the computer, but I'll have my notebook open beside me. And when I come to the place where I think, but I want them to see him, they've got to see him, I'll, I'll 
really make a mental effort. It is like stretching your muscles in your mind, in your imagination. And I can see him. And how am I going to make that in words? And I'll jot down lots and lots sometimes. But I don't want lots and lots in the final version. You don't want to read a paragraph of he was like this, like this. He had a nose like this, eyes like You don't want to read that. In fact, the more there is sometimes, the less powerful it is. You then sort of select the crucial things, the, 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 the four dots of description, which will between them in your reader evoke him. It's very, it's a very fascinating thing psychologically. I've actually, when I used to teach, I've done workshops on describe the person sitting opposite you. And the first thing you have to say in those workshops is there will be no reading out. Nobody is going to see what you've written about them. We're not going to hear it. You're just going to do it. Now, try and get the presence of that person. Not, not every writer wants or needs to do that. Not all writing works like that, but I love it. And uh, funnily enough, Elizabeth Bowen, who I was just talking about, uh, she's brilliant at it, I think. And I, it isn't like a painting. With a painting, a brilliant painting, you really can see the person as if you're in the room with them. Writing will never do that. You know, you can you can actually read Anna Karenina and think she's blonde all the way through and discover she has blonde. I, I don't actually know. Is she blonde or blackhead? Oh, my goodness. I don't even know which of those is true. And yet I feel as if, I feel as if I know Anna Karenina's physique. There's, there's a marvellous Henry James thing about Charlotte Stant in The Golden Bowl where he says she has a waist that is like one of those soft purses where you have a ring around the purse which gathers the, the leather in. Mm. And I, I see her all from that. You can yes. see it. I think she's probably corseted, isn't she? Because people don't naturally have waists <laughs> like that. Women were in those days. And I see the looseness of the body in that concentrated waist and it's very sexy and I mean, he says other things about her too which which you can which give her to you so you just have to find the, the triangulation points that will that will direct your reader to the right type yeah it's a mystery it's a fascinating really fascinating study in itself quite a little bit apart from other things that one does in writing yeah you should teach, we offer these Zibby classes, whatever, or just classes from Zibby Media. But I feel like you should teach how to write, how to describe, how to write descriptive, how to describe people or something. <laughs> you should do like another workshop because it's, it is fascinating. And I think it's an area that's so hard. And then I, yeah. in reading, you can tell like when people have a gift for it and when they don't. Yeah. And yeah, it is that crazy thing because essentially you're just trying to get people to conjure it up in their own minds yeah. in whatever shape. Yeah. So and they will conjure it up not in words. And right. that's it's that, isn't it? It's you've conjured it, you've got it. Now find the words that will somehow make the same conjuring in the person who reads your words. Yeah. I know it is, it is, it's really interesting and mysterious like a sorcery and I did have fun teaching it's sorcery it's sorcery it is sorcery wow amazing what do you think about how hard it is to get books into the world these days and like even you this master elegant perfect I mean you're such a pro but you still have to jump into the 
the water of swimming fish, right? With everybody having a book out every two mm-hmm. seconds. Like, mm-hmm. what do you make of what the sort of culture of book release is like and what you do with literature coming out and versus, mm-hmm. you know, everything's just coming out into this big funnel of information that people have to quickly like sort of pick yeah. something out of. What do you, how do you feel about that? Where do you make of it? I think partly I, I think keep faith because when I was first published 20 three years ago, whatever it was, I think everybody was very anxious about the future of books and whether anyone would have time anymore for a slow read and a subtle read. And I think in the end, with all the cacophony of noise that surround us, just as you describe, and all the claims on our attention, the, the truth is that people love reading and almost they are learning now to love it very deliberately as a different kind of attentiveness to the, you know, watching what's on Twitter and what's on the news and what's on the podcast. And, you know, instead, just take yourself away and one sentence at a time, follow what a writer is putting on the page and let them challenge you and take your imagination there. So I've got a kind of faith that if somebody writes a good book, it isn't easy to get it published. But I know enough really discriminating publishers who are in it because they love good writing. And I believe that books will get published and will get out there and maybe won't be bestsellers, but you can build an audience. There are enough reviewers out there. I mean, that fewer and fewer, that's that's quite a that's a sad thing. I don't know what it's like in the States, but here definitely our review pages are squeezed and squeezed and there's less room for reviewing. So that's a shame because I do think reviewing is an important part of the culture. But still, we have, well, we have podcasts like yours, in fact, Sibby. We have, we have here in the UK too, you know, live young women who are, you know, who who wish to dedicate their time, as you do, to talking about books and comparing them and discussing them and going into how it's done. And yeah, I mean, what's not to like? I I, I have faith. I, I, I think one could have been doubtful, but all the evidence is that reading is a very, very special part of our culture and that people are valuing it almost more rather than less. Does that make sense to you? I mean, you're better positioned than me to kind of know whether that's true. I love that. It's encouraging. And um, yeah, I feel that people, because it's now gotten to a point of complete overwhelm, like that Mm. there is just like factually too much, too much information and it's coming at us so quickly that people have had to take stock and make decisions more consciously than they used to um, versus as opposed to, I'm just going to pick up a book this afternoon, this summer Sunday or whatever. Now it's, you know, people have, I think the whole culture of making it into lists and sharing something about it and posting it. And, um, you know, somebody was just saying to me that what they love about writing is that it's the only thing you do completely alone but you, yet you're never alone in it. It's something that connects you to yeah. others without being yeah. with others. And that that made yeah, her right. feel so, such a part of things, even when she was alone, all, all, you know? So, yes. yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's, I mean, often one feels that when you're writing, you feel I can be clearer and more 
exact about what I mean. Of course I can here at leisure than even chatting with, you know, with one's most intimate friends. And I'm not, I'm not, it isn't an either or situation. One desperately needs to chat with one's intimate friends. But yeah. there's something about the personal discipline of thought that goes into writing and that goes into reading, which I don't know, it seems that don't want to be pretentious about it, but it is some kind of spiritual exercise, actually, and some intensification of 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 awareness that is so precious and so valuable. Yeah, and I I think and and you're 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 right. This contradiction of its solitariness, but yet in its very essence, it's if you're writing, it's to communicate, and if you're reading, you are communicating with that person who wrote it. You you feel. I mean, I think it's almost odd when you've read somebody's book and then you meet them. You actually think, oh, oh, but I, but I know you. Mm-hmm. I know you more than any amount of having a coffee together can do. I know you deep down from the way you make your sentences and your pictures. So it is a fascinating way of humans speaking to one another, actually. So true. When every, every so often if someone says that to me or they read my memoir or they follow me on Instagram or whatever, and they're like, this is so funny. I feel like I know yeah. you. I yeah, usually exactly. say, you, I usually say you do know me. You like do. you know me very well. I just don't know you, you know, yes. <laughs> like, yes. like let's, you know, like now tell me about you. Like you, I already laid all my cards on the table. So yeah. what's up with yeah. you these days? <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, amazing. Well, are you reading anything amazing? And where are you going on these trains and everything that you're planning? And what are you going to pack to go? I'm going this afternoon just across to Bath, which is only an hour and 15 minutes away on the train, to do something at a lovely, lovely bookshop there called Toppings and Co. Where I used to, that was where I used to teach in Bath. So I know the beautiful Georgian town very well and I know that bookshop so that'll be very nice I expect there'll be probably some of my ex-students there I'm hoping and some of my colleagues uh then my husband and I are going up to Edinburgh for partly going to Glasgow first to see my brother and then Edinburgh in Scotland as of course you know uh for the literature festival up there that'll be lovely and then I'm going to a super book festival in Denmark called the Louisiana Festival. So I keep thinking I'm coming across to the southern states, but it's a a beautiful art museum north of Copenhagen. Apparently it's a very special festival, so I'm looking forward to that. So that's what I was booking this morning. Oh, fun. Yeah. That sounds great. Amazing. Um, Okay. Well, you've given so much advice already, but for the person who's listening today and is in a similar spot when stuck in their own writing the way you seem to be, what is your advice to them? Um, probably, I mean, not not necessarily keep going because, of course, here and there, there's a story or a novel, which one shouldn't, which one gives up. But So what is it? I think the best thing is to train your brain and I did used to so go on about this to my students, in reading your own work as if it wasn't yours. You never can 100%. Of course you can't. But you have to actually make your headache with looking back over that chapter again and again and and trying to get some distance on it. Sometimes I play tricks on myself, like changing the appearance of the thing on the screen and then changing it back again just to jolt it into unfamiliarity. I know a lot of people print it out, which I don't do, but that seems um, another way of jolting it so that you're reading it as if it were a book, not words by you. And 
actually, I feel as if learning how to do that, even though it really does make your mind ache, is an essential part of being self-critical. And there's a juggling act, which there is no, one never learns to get quite right. There's a juggling act between the criticism that is absolutely necessary, where you think, oh, I'm not doing that well enough. I can make that better. That's too long. Take some out. And then there's the criticism, which is just, it's no good, throw it away. And somewhere between those two, you have to find your path of believing in yourself, but doubting yourself. And I, I, I do not have an answer to that path. It's, it's, a, it's a thicket and you just have to machete your way through one way or another. And maybe at the end of it, ask some, you know, finally, when the moment comes, you need somebody else's eyes on the work and maybe all the way through. If when I was an apprentice writer, and I, I did, I, I needed other people to read me at the right moments as I was going along. And I don't do that so much now, but it was precious at the time. That's it. Thank you. This has been so amazing. I feel like I've just gotten a private masterclass and I really appreciate all of your time and I have just so much respect for you. Thank you so much. Zippy, lovely to talk to you again. What fun. Bye-bye. Have fun on your trip. (laughs) Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 